Well, happy Easter, Three Crosses family. We are in the podcast studio to talk more about the Easter message. And so with that, let's get into the conversation. Pastor Danny, happy Easter to you. Happy Easter to you. It was a great Sunday. We had so many great services, so many people um, feeling the love of Christ in our church context, and it was it was so great. I know listening to the podcast, a lot of people have appreciated learning uh, the thought process behind a lot of things that happen in a church context. And so I'm wondering if you could start us off by addressing what topic you decided to speak on, which came from the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. And so, uh, Pastor Danny, why the road to Emmaus on Easter Sunday? Yeah. So I, every year, Christmas and Easter, both, it's a bit of a journey because we're hitting the same texts every single time, which is awesome, right? That's a reason that we talk about these two very important stories every single year. Um, and yet, I do feel like I want to make sure that this isn't just routine. Um, but at the same time, we're not just being like weirdly creative for the sake of being creative, right? We're gathering to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So I kind of come into the study, uh, you know, it's probably about a month ago, kind of thinking about, okay, what direction would God have us to go on Easter Sunday? And so my practice is I, I take some time away um, for prayer and reflection and study. And I read through all the different Easter narratives, resurrection narratives and all the gospels. And actually this year I was planning to to preach on the actual account when the women go to the tomb and are uh, discovering that Jesus is not there, kind of hit the emotion of that. Um, but as I read, I was actually struck by the passage right before the road to Emmaus uh, that talks about how they're coming to the tomb and the body's not there and there's this mystery and it feels like this question mark is hanging in the air. And I found myself really intrigued by the the tension that exists even in the biblical narrative uh, that means something happened and no one really knows what it is. And as I continued reading, what I saw in the road to Emmaus story was the way that Jesus came alongside uh, these these men on the road and the folks who were in the, the room eating the meal later and opened their eyes very intentionally and personally to the truth of the resurrection. And I thought, you know, for for a Sunday where we're inviting so many visitors who are coming and so many skeptics, like we talk about all the time. Um, and the, a study into how Jesus opens our eyes to the resurrection would be a really good and important thing to talk about on Easter Sunday. So that's why we landed on road to Emmaus. What an exciting topic to talk about, especially um, on this Easter Sunday. And so let's dive right in to the resurrection, the what uh, Paul would call, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's one of this these hinge moments in the Christian faith. And uh, it comes right out of Luke 24. If you're following along at home, it's verses 1 through 8. I won't read all of it, but um, you know the women show up to the tomb and they're frightened. And then they have these men say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And so this is this is a hinge moment, hinge 
doctrine of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of somebody who died brutally on a cross. And I know in your sermon, you mentioned different parties, you know, whether you're atheistic, whether you're agnostic, and, you know, maybe you're just searching or maybe you're a Christian. Um, All these people are searching for answers. And, you know, I could hear from especially the atheists and um, agnostics in the crowd. Okay, you're making this wild claim that somebody has raised from the dead. Prove it. Right. Just very simple. Prove it. What kind of evidence do we have that Jesus rose from the grave as opposed to, you know, somebody stealing his body or, you know, I've even heard Jesus had a twin brother or something and that's the person (laughs) that was put on the cross. Uh, What kind of evidence do we have that this actually happened? Yeah, that's the the quintessential question. Oh, yeah. Prove the resurrection. I, I was as you were talking there, I was just thinking about the the way that the early church and the apostles, they just double down on the resurrection and make it an, uh, a claim that you have to believe to be a Christian, which is pretty crazy when you think about uh, just how marvelous of a claim that it is that their Messiah died and then rose again on the third day. Uh, there are so many easier ways <laughs> to navigate right. that season. And yet not only uh, does the early church uh, double down on resurrection, but they like double down on resurrection, right? You read that verse from Paul saying, listen, if this didn't, if this didn't happen, everything we're doing is futile and useless, right? Everything. It doesn't even matter. I was reading a book uh, a few weeks ago on uh, the church a few hundred years later, and the author was drawing out just how even 200 years after the resurrection, that is the thing they keep doubling down on where he said, man, it would have been so easy to soften the Christian religion and just say, hey, we follow the moral teachings of Jesus. And yet they were a people known to outsiders as the people who believe this astronomical claim in the resurrection of the dead in their Messiah, Jesus, the son of God. And so I think for me, as I as I consider how do we know that it happened, I think you know, there's there's a lot of ways you could take this. I am not like an apologetics uh, master, like the person who's really good at defending the faith with reason and philosophy and all that. But just for me personally, I think two of the strongest arguments for me for how we know the resurrection happened were, uh, number one, just the way that the scriptures and the early church just doubles down on this concept in a way that on one hand feels like they're defending it. On, and on the other hand, they leave themselves wide open to scrutiny. Right. So, you know, on one hand, you read the gospel accounts and you see talking about how they put the stone in front of the tomb and there were guards guarding the tomb, which a skeptic can read that and think, okay, well, they're just trying to build an argument that Jesus has to raise from the grave. The body wasn't stolen because look how well it was guarded. Right. And so they're trying to build this propaganda around the resurrection, a skeptic might say. But then you see the next thing that happens is they send these women to come to the tomb and they're the ones who discover uh, the resurrected Jesus. And if you do any study on this, you'll realize that women were not in that day seen as a reliable source of testimony. So it's like, wait, if they're trying to build a case that Jesus resurrected, why are women the eyewitnesses? They would never want to use women if they're fabricating the story. And then even when you read the story, there's so much mystery. There's so much tension. Jesus appears to them uh, in as they're eating a meal or on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know if it's him or not. And they're doubting even as they worship. And, and you're thinking, okay, if they're really trying to prove to the world that Jesus actually rose from the dead by fabricating a false story, why do they leave so many holes in here <laughs> where it'd be like the... 
the community around them would say, no, we don't believe women. No, look how they were doubting. Look, you didn't yourself even know if it was Jesus. There's so much room for skepticism in the gospel accounts that make me believe that if this was just a fabricated, made-up story um, to try to push forward this new religion, why did they work so hard in some ways to make it ironclad and in other ways leave so much room to just like hand wave it away? Um, I think that's for me one of those remarkable pieces of evidence. I think another one is just the transformation of the disciples, right? We see them and the records show them as a scattered people, right? We see on Palm Sunday, they're proclaiming Jesus is the King of the Jews. And by Good Friday, everyone deserts him. And so then everything changes and you see a Peter who denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion, not only be restored to ministry, but then stand up and defend his faith boldly and go to death for the resurrection claim uh, 30, 40 years later, whatever it was. Uh, you see all these different apostles giving their lives, even a, an apostle Paul, who was a um, an amazing, strong leader in the Jewish religion, converting to Christianity and putting his life literally down on the line, going to prison and saying, the resurrection happened. If it didn't, my whole life is a waste. And these are people who lived in the time of Jesus. Jesus and the apostles. Um, and so I, I see the transformation that happened and the way that Jesus opened folks' eyes um, that, man, th- this story, it either happened or it didn't. <laughs> and when I read the scriptures through the lens of it didn't, I think, man, these guys could have made a much stronger case than it did. <laughs> but at the same time, right, it just feels like they're not trying to prove anything. It feels like they're really just trying to lay out what they believe happened. And so mm. either all of those apostles were deceived together or something or this thing actually happened. So sometimes you got to lean on the Occam's razor that the simplest thing is the reason that so many people from so many cities had totally drastic life change that when Jesus left, they become courageous, preach the gospel, put to death and never recanted. They didn't get any money out of it. They died all poor and alone. (laughs) Like uh, they got nothing. They, they, they transformed because it was real and they believed it because they saw him. And they saw him because he intentionally visited them, opened their eyes, and put them on mission. And that mission still exists today. It's interesting that your response was all through the lens of Scripture. And I wonder if people are still thinking out there, well, okay, that feels like a circular argument um, using Scripture to like prove Scripture itself. And so does the argument of the resurrection really rely on the validity and the veracity of Scripture itself? I mean, I think yes and no. I think the what I just expressed, a lot of that is found in the scriptures, but all of it too is are things that we we can test and see and verify. Right? Mm. Like we we see that this religion was formed. Uh, we have historical accounts of these sure. people in their writings. Right? We are. Um, so again, it's yes, it's from the scriptures. So yeah, maybe all these people in different cities over the next thirty years all collab came together in this like summit <laughs> and made up this story and then found right. a way to like reverse engineer it. Maybe or maybe it just really happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, yes, a lot of these things we see a glimpse in the scriptures into, um, but there's also historical evidence around all of these things. Uh, I think the hardest thing about the resurrection, right, is it's like any murder investigation until you have a body. It's really hard to, to have an answer. And the hard thing about the resurrection claim is the reason you can't prove it is because <laughs> there's no body. And that's an argument from silence. And so it's like, that's not an argument that like changes my life one way or the other, but 
Um, but I do think one of the things that we do see in the gospel accounts and in kind of the historicity of that time is that one of the things that that the opponents of the faith were really concerned with was producing a body, right? This is why mm. they're guarding the tomb. This is why um, they're concerned with pulling Jesus off the cross at a certain time, all these different types of things, because um, some of these religious leaders really didn't want the disciples to be able to make up a claim that the body had risen when really they had stolen it. Um, and so really, the, if you look at the day, the you know, in the time of Jesus, the alternate explanation of what happened was that the disciples stole the body and hid it, discarded it of it, whatever it is, um, which I feel like, so yeah, either they stole the body and got past Roman guards, all these different kinds of things. You can make a case around that. Um, or there is nobody because he rose from the de- dead. The linens were in the, the hmm. grave because he uh, and the angels rolled the stones away. Um, and so I think that's that argument from silence is not like the strongest argument, but at the same time, those kind of are the two arguments in the day of the disciples was, was the body stolen or did Jesus really raise from the dead? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier for me to believe that these men were drastically transformed by the gospel into courageous people by the Holy spirit because of the resurrection than to believe that these like followers of Jesus somehow all became these zealots and became uh, wielded swords and somehow stole the body and covered it up. And no one ever found evidence of the whole thing. And like, it just seems like they were so devoted to Jesus that seems like a very unethical stretch that they would have to go to, to steal this body, hide it, discard of his remains, and then make this lie that gets them nothing other than martyrdom. Um, So that is the alternate theory that the body was stolen. That just seems a lot. I mean, it's not harder to believe than a physical bodily resurrection, but in a sense of like, that seems way more out of character than the wondering and mystery you see in the scriptures. So um, Mm. yeah, I think these things are in the scriptures, but at the same time, we read the writings. We look at the archaeology in terms of like the account of what happened in those cities in those times. We hear these accounts from different Roman leaders and all that. And we see that something happened there. And everyone's saying, these people say this guy raised from the dead. Um, so that happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't know if you can prove the resurrection itself from those documents. Yeah. And if you're asking these questions, you're not alone because the next couple of verses talk about people that were trying to figure out what actually just happened. And so uh, I'm looking at verses 9 through 27. And in these instances, you pointed out on Sunday, Danny, that Peter was somebody who went and uh, went away wondering to himself what had happened. Uh, And then we get to the road to Emmaus where two of the disciples are walking and Jesus shows up to him and they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus kind of plays along with it and saying, like, what are you discussing together? And it's like, oh, didn't you hear about this, Jesus? And he says, what things? And uh, they go on to explain, like, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, like, this was what he predicted. This is what happened to him. This is what we're hearing, like all these things. And he replies, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the, the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus then explained what the scriptures said concerning himself. And so you picked up on this theme of like, hey, it seems like people still are in the dark or still trying to figure out what's going on with this Jesus figure. Like, did he rise from the dead? Did something crazy happen? Like, what is going on? And I felt another skeptic question underneath this. Why keep anyone in the dark at all? You know, if this is a difference between eternal life 
an eternal death. It almost feels like Jesus was kind of like playing games here, you know? And so I wonder like, why, why did Jesus keep people from seeing things? Why does God keep people from seeing things? Why are there people out there that live in the darkness? And, uh, you know, why didn't, you know, God just shout off the rooftops like Jesus is risen. If you believe in him, you'll be saved. Like, why didn't things just end there? The trumpet sounded and, you know, yeah. Why keep people in the dark in the first place? I want to point out that if you are someone who's listening today and you're thinking, yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Why would he keep them in the dark? (laughs) Um, Congratulations, because I feel like you can't wonder about that unless you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Hmm. Right. So I can't tell you what you're allowed to hold and not hold, but I would say you're not allowed to not believe in the resurrection and wonder why God kept people in the dark. Because part of it, as I read through that text and as you were recounting it, AJ, right now, one of the biggest things I was thinking was, man, what a terrible way to try to make up a lie about a resurrected savior, <laughs> keeping everyone in the dark, right? right it's like, right. if this was propaganda, it would be like, then Mary saw him. She's like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Then he comes to the road in Emmaus and they were blown away because they saw Jesus. Uh, but the fact that they were all in the dark should make the skeptic read this and be like, wait, did they all make up a story because they all hallucinated and pretended this guy Frank was Jesus or something because he, you know, like he talked like Jesus or whatever it is. Good old um, Frank. Yeah, that's probably not uh, a, a name of a, a person in Hebrew in the first century. But, uh, you know, that, that's one of those like mysteries too of like why, not just why would he in the way that you're asking it, AJ, but if this was just propaganda to try to make up this made up religion, you would not have kept everyone in the dark, right? And so um, the fact that Jesus kept them in the dark is a question that assumes the resurrection did happen and that God, for some reason on the other side of it, saw fit to allow people to remain in ignorance about him and not just see him, right? And so there's a lot Mm. of practical, you know, say, hey, maybe his resurrected body was different in the same way our resurrected bodies, maybe they're unrecognizable. Maybe there's something about theology around the resurrected self that's part of it there. Um, but I, I think part of it, there's a, a theological aspect to this as well. But one thing, it's it's hard to to see things that, <laughs> that uh, are outside of your realm of cognition, right? So like, I've always laughed, you know, we, we have a uh, a history at our church of doing Easter presentations like musicals where we kind of show a depiction of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our stage. And one thing that I always feel like is the hardest thing to be an actor around is the actors on our stage when the resurrection happens, because what would a human really do if they saw a resurrected person, right? Hmm. Would they really be like, Oh my gosh, it's you again. Oh, wow. I saw you die. Right. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. Right. It's like if someone who I saw die brutally three days ago was sitting in my living room, I would probably just faint. You know, I don't know, right? Or convince myself in shock that's not that person. I don't know, right? So there might be some practical reasons these people can't see him. We do see some of that in um, after the road to Emmaus when Jesus comes into the room. There's the whole he's a ghost where it's like they're starting to see like, oh, wow, this is Jesus. Our minds are like synapsing, trying to figure out how do we fit this into our schema here? Like he's here, but he died. We know he died. Maybe he's a a spirit haunting us from the grave, right? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not a ghost, right? So Jesus is almost like putting their brains together and helping them see what is actually true. So I do think we need to lay down that a bodily resurrection of a dead loved one 
is not something that we are prepared to encounter. And so there might be some physical reasons why they're kept in the dark. But even at a spiritual fundamental level, I think when we think of the gospel message, there's a, uh, Paul, I think it's in Corinthians, talks about, Second Corinthians, about uh, a veil that covers the hearts of folks who are, are not believing. Um, and that's kind of the de facto um, place where each of us are. Because of the fall, there's a, a veil, something that covers, stands between us and God. Whether we see a glimpse of that in the Garden of Eden, where there's clothing put around uh, men and women, almost like this uh, separation between them naked and unafraid and their God, or a firmament in the creation account, where there's a separation between God in the heavens and his creation below. Um, or like like Paul says about the folks who are from the Jewish tradition, but haven't yet received Christ as Savior. He says, still today when they read Moses, a veil covers their hearts. They can't see him. Paul even says in this world, even while we do see, we see like we're looking through a glass dimly, like a foggy window trying to see the truth on the other side. And so I I do think we need to realize if God is real, one of the things we know about God is that he is incomprehensible to us and it's hard to see him. And our faith a lot of times is like a foggy, looking through a fogged up window And so what we see Jesus doing is almost coming over and wiping off the glass and opening eyes and saying, hey, you can have access to see that. Um, And we do see some of the work that Jesus was doing in the Easter weekend was a work of removing veils. This is the significance of ripping the curtain in the temple, the holy place. There's access to the Father, but there's also the ability to kind of get that veil out of the way so that the Father can be right there, so that God can be right in front of you. Um, And so on one hand, When we see Jesus, we see God face to face. On the other hand, we see in all of the gospel accounts before the crucifixion that most people who saw Jesus couldn't see Jesus. The religious Mm. leaders, they saw him physically. They couldn't recognize him for who he was because they were blinded by power, blinded by their own religiosity, blinded by sin, blinded because of the fallen condition of human beings. And until Jesus opens the eyes of anyone, they cannot truly see God. This is why one of his miracles a lot is opening the eyes of the blind. It's because that's metaphorically and even literally what he does for us. So this is not just a thing he does post-resurrection. That's from Genesis to Revelation and in the ministry of Jesus, an eye-opening ministry um, because all of us in our fallen nature can't see God for who he is. So we pick up from the road to Emmaus where the disciples were still in that veiled, uh, foggy stage of who this resurrected Jesus was. And they seemingly invite him over to uh, eat and dine with him and stay with with uh, the disciples. And uh, it wasn't until then where he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized them. And their exclamation here was, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so it seems like this is the instance where their eyes are opened. And then uh, it says that Jesus just disappears from their sight. <laughs> so I've, I'm interested in your take on this scene right here of Jesus opening the eyes of these disciples for the first time. Um, is there something significant about, you know, dining with Jesus and, and taking bread, giving thanks with Jesus and uh, that burning within us, our hearts burning within us. I've heard that in uh, some different religions of like, that is your sensor of truth. If your heart burns within you, um, so what does that like, what does it look like to have your heart burn within you? And, uh, 
yeah, what's your take on Jesus opening uh, the disciples' eyes in this way? There's so much going on in this. It's it's uh, this is like my favorite. This whole passage is awesome. You know, I was thinking that you know they're thinking they see a ghost. That's we talked about that a second ago, um, which is kind of ironic too because you don't see a lot of ghost visitations in the scriptures. You see a couple. <laughs> uh, usually, like you see, like the author of Hebrews says, like when sometimes humans entertain angels unaware. Uh, we, I think of like Genesis when Abraham and Sarah are visited by the three angelic beings before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they don't know it, but they're actually entertaining God himself. And then he starts to realize it and start to wrestle with God a little bit. And you see the same kind of thing of a slow realization of who are these people they're talking to. Uh, and so I kind of was thinking like, it's kind of funny that the disciples are like, oh my gosh, it's an angel, right? Where Jesus would be like, I'm not an angel, right? I'm Jesus. But instead they think he's a ghost. But we see this motif all over the place of God visiting humans um, and then him having to do the work to slowly open their eyes. But it is interesting throughout the entire Bible, most of the time we see this happening, um, when God visits people, it seems like he prefers to remain fairly anonymous and is very nervous isn't the word, but almost he acts like he's nervous to open their eyes too much too quickly. Hmm. And so Jesus performs the communion meal for them. Their eyes are open through that sacrament and they're like, it's you. And then boom, he's gone. Right. And, and on one hand, it's very strange. On the other hand, if you have read through the gospel accounts, this is classic Jesus stuff. <laughs> it's like when people start to recognize him, he leaves. When people start to follow him too much, he scares them away. Uh, when people try to make him king, he somehow sneaks out of the crowd and walks away. Um, he just doesn't seem interested in gaining some following. Um, and so this is very consistent with the behavior of Jesus in all of the gospels. Why? I don't know, right? Who knows why Jesus does what he does? But I think what I would guess would be um, that Jesus is very carefully, um, you know, it's almost like if you're an anesthesiologist waking someone up from surgery and opening their eyes in that sense, you're very careful to how do you bring them out out of that thing. Mm. It's almost like Jesus acts with that same level of care of not too much too soon, but sure, slowly, but surely. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like he's toying with them. Because as you keep reading, he continues to open their eyes more and more. Right. Um, so it almost he's doing it masterfully. Um, but yeah, the divine anesthesiologist is awakening them from their slumber. Um, is kind of how it looks. Uh, but I just love how funny it is too. So um, God seems to have a sense of humor at the same time. Yeah, and then you get to verse thirty-seven. Uh, that's where they see. Oh man, I think this is a ghost. <laughs> and uh, he says, "Look at my hands and look at my feet." It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so he's kind of answering each and every one of their objections in only the way that Jesus could. And then he gets to this really important verse uh, down in verse 43. He tells them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so he opened their minds so they could understand understand the scriptures. He told them this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so what he's saying is... Uh, here are the scriptures. Let me tell you what they say about me. They say that the Messiah is going to suffer, rise, 
uh, from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It's a kind of a long-winded sentence, but it's a really good one to unpack because when you look at the Old Testament, it's really hard to discern that is its message. You know, amongst all the different laws, the, uh, you know, Psalms, you know, all these different genres of writings. And it seems like Jesus is emphasizing these things. And so, Pastor Danny, I was wondering if you could help us orient our minds to where Jesus sees this in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Yeah, it's, you know, Jesus, I notice in this passage and in many of the other accounts when he opens eyes is he does it by preaching the gospel message, this truth of, hey, this is what the scriptures have always said would happen. Um, this is kind of the meta eye opening, right, where it's like this is the truth hidden in plain sight, where uh, you know, Peter talks about the prophets searching intently with the greatest care, trying to predict the times and circumstances regarding the Messiah. Um and they were serving us, not themselves, because they were trying to forecast what they saw in the scriptures. Uh, we see in Jesus' day so many people trying to uh, understand who Jesus is because he didn't fit in the box of what they thought the Messiah would look like, but he was so adjacent to it. Um, and then you see after this, you see like an apostle Paul is saved by Jesus, and then he goes off in the wilderness for several years studying the Old Testament, and he comes back and he says, oh my goodness, I never, he doesn't say it literally like this, but he <laughs> comes and presents like he's saying, oh my goodness, I I never saw any of this before, but it's everywhere. Like Jesus mm-hmm. is throughout the entire world. How did we miss it? How did we miss it? Right? And so Jesus is doing that exact same thing on the road to Emmaus and in this room. And he's saying, how can you miss it? Right? You're foolish, slow to believe. Like this is what everything has been pointing to. And they're just kind of staring at him like, what are you talking about? Um, and once your eyes are open, you go back um, and everything points to Jesus. Um and so I think, you know, part of that you'd asked about hearts burning within us. I think um, I think it's a little, that, a little bit of that tension here too, where hearing Jesus saying this, evidently these apostles are, or these disciples are thinking, huh, that kind of makes sense, right? But they're skeptical. And then when they see it's Jesus, they're like, I knew it, right? I knew it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I do think like that's a, at a meta level, what Jesus is doing is what he's doing even at a micro level right here is he's opening their eyes to what the whole scriptures say about him. This is one of those is like, you can absolutely read through the Bible and see that Jesus is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like, you don't have to be a Christian to see that. Um, but I do think for the people living in Jesus' day, they had such a view of who Jesus would be that he had to open their eyes even to like, look at the scriptures. This actually predicts all of this. This is why this makes so much sense. Um, so I think, you know, I think even for, for those of you guys who are out there listening today to this, um, maybe you haven't yet stepped over the line of faith. Um, I, I think when you do, there might be a moment in your life um, on the other side of believing in Jesus where you say something like, I knew it. I, I knew it. Like when I went to church when I was a kid, those Bible stories, they stuck with me. I knew there was something to it, but I ignored it. Right? Or hmm. man, when Danny was preaching on Easter Sunday, I was skeptical, but at the same time, there was something in me like, there's something true about this. Right. And then we kind of fade out that little flame that's dying or that's being built up inside of us. Um, but on the other side of believing, we look back and we say, you know what? Like, when I heard that message, I knew it was there. I just ignored it, right? Like, wasn't my heart burning inside of me when I heard those things? And so, um, yeah, I think 
I think what Jesus is doing is not just lighting the fire inside of them, um, but he just keeps going back to opening their eyes to the entirety of scripture and saying, this whole thing is about me. I know this doesn't fit within your realm of understanding, a bodily resurrection of a person, especially God himself. But trust me, read through the Bible. Everything's pointed to this and eventually they get it. Um, And it's beautiful to me. They don't get it through the argument. They get it through the sacrament um, that when Jesus breaks the bread and uh, passes it around, their eyes are open. They see him through the grace given in the sacramental meal um, and they consume him and their eyes are opened, right? Um, This, they, they eat his flesh, they drink his blood, so to speak. um, And then they literally touch his flesh and blood. They Mm -hmm. put their hand in his side. um, And by connecting with him bodily, and him through communion bodily, they get it. Um, so it's not a theory they're believing. They're actually seeing him in front of their eyes. Yeah, it's such a powerful passage, especially in my life, because I know I get super excited about these obscure Old Testament passages that find their way to Jesus. And it's just like, oh my goodness, like I've never seen that before. And uh, that's been happening more often than not, which is great as I continue to meditate on the Old Testament. So uh, we've made it to the end of our road. Look at that. And the final scene at the road to Emmaus is uh, kind of encapsulating of what you said on Sunday, this wild story of the road to Emmaus. We've had ghosts. We've had uh, appearances with bodies pierced. Uh, we've had all sorts of different things. We've had people staying in the dark. And now we have people being lifted up into heaven. And so it just keeps getting better. And this is the end of the Luke account as well. Um, why do you think Luke ends on such a wild story about what's going on here? And how do you feel like this final scene of Jesus being taken up into heaven captures the road to Emmaus story? I think that what we need to understand looking back at the Sunday of Passion Week and even before that is that what the disciples and the Jewish community who are screaming out, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, like Pastor Ian talked about last week. Um, What those people were expecting was that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem, right, on his stallion. Um, So they were already little Florida and it was on a foal of a donkey. Uh, And then he would ascend the throne. He would ascend the steps in the temple. He would take his rightful seat as the son of God or uh, whoever was the leader of Israel. Um, He would ascend. And he didn't. He he comes in on town on a donkey, which is throwing him off. Uh, then he ascends the temple steps and he starts turning over tables. <laughs> he gets himself killed. Um, and I think what, what N.T. Wright points out in, uh, I think it was in Simply Jesus, uh, when he's talking about the ascension of Jesus, is that in order for a king to ascend his throne, um, he, he must conquer the enemy first. And Jesus going straight from the donkey's back to the temple steps, there was no conquered enemy. He was just seizing a throne at that point. Um, and so when Jesus turns over the tables, like what's he doing? He doesn't want the throne, right? They try to make him a king. He says no. Um, and then we think, okay, well, what enemy is Jesus trying to conquer? Is he going to conquer the Romans? Is he going to conquer the religious leaders when he turns over the tables? Who is he trying to conquer? Um, and then he dies and think, okay, well, I guess he didn't conquer anybody. Um, but what we learn in the Easter weekend is that Jesus' primary battle was not against the Romans or the, the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus' primary battle was against sin and death itself and against Satan. And so Jesus battles sin on the cross and wins. He battles 
Satan and death in the grave and wins. He emerges victoriously on Easter Sunday, comes out of the throne, or sorry, comes out of the grave as a, a victor, and now finally has conquered the enemy necessary for him to ascend the steps into his throne. But he doesn't ascend the steps into the temple at Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Rome and ascend the steps into the temple there. He ascends the steps of a throne into the heavenly places mm. and ascends and is hidden from their sight as a cloud hides him. And we read later that he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God and begins to rule and reign from that place. Mm -hmm. And so the reason Luke ends with the ascension is because that's where everybody thought Jesus was going mm. when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was ascending his throne. Mm -hmm. But his throne was not a throne on earth. His throne was a throne in the heavenly places. And from there, Jesus rules and reigns and transforms the world in power as he sends forth his spirit in the book of Acts. Um so I, I think that's why he ends with that is because that's the culmination of the ministry of Jesus was not merely his death and resurrection, but ascending and sitting down on his throne um, that he had earned by dying for sin, by conquering death, um, and where from his throne he can send forth his real army, right, his spirit um, to go and do the work of creating a kingdom without borders um, that covers all the earth. I love how Luke ends. It's then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And so if you were just visiting us for the Easter uh, service, we're glad you visited. And, uh, you know, if you want to be like the disciples here and and return with great joy and continually worshiping at the temple, uh, we don't have temples now. We have uh church bodies like we've been engrafted in, into this church uh community and uh that's what we do here we we worship we praise god we um have our minds continually open through bible study we do uh, all these things we we get together in community we pray we we commune with god and um we'd love for you to join us and so if you're looking to get connected uh, reach out to either one of us. My email personally, aj at threecrosses.org. And so be happy to connect with you. But um, man, what a great wrap to Holy Week to just have that image of Jesus reigning on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And so Pastor Danny, thanks again for uh, sitting down and chatting about Easter. It's my pleasure. It was a great day.